it's been a bad couple weeks if you're in the airline industry, I think. Um, I'm not going to focus on, on that, but I'm going to sound like I'm an advertisement for Southwest Airlines right now, so I'm not. Not advertising for them. But I was struck a, a number of years ago as I was reading uh, the book Start With Why by Simon Sinek, and he's, he's a marketing guy talking about uh, different companies and how, how their marketing strategy works. And, and one of the things about Southwest Airlines that I've always found so remarkable from the beginning is that their concern was for their employees first because they believed that if they took care of their employees, their employees would take care of their customers, which others have adopted that business model over the years too or, or followed that same model, and it works. But employee satisfaction matters in good customer service. People care. And, and Southwest apparently has dropped customers over the years because they said, we don't treat our employees that way, neither will you. We're not going to deal with this. So you're going to have to fly with somebody else. It would be nice. Um, but it, it, it brings us to the idea that we live in a consumer culture. And, and we sometimes have the consumer mentality. So we want what we want when we want it for the price that we want it. And if we don't get those things or we don't get the right combination of those things, we have the right to complain or we feel that we have the right to complain about those things. And sometimes that consumer mentality comes into this place, doesn't it? It comes into the church. And so somebody can actually say, if I'm not blessed this Sunday, I'm going to walk somewhere else. Right now, take that to the, the nth degree. Sometimes that happens. Boy, this place isn't meeting my needs. So I'm going down the street. There's plenty of places. We treat it like a consumer. Well, what I'm going to do and what we're going to do, we have a couple different voices going into this. We're going to be talking about intentional evangelism over the next bunch of weeks. And as we talk about this, uh, first of all, we don't want to be those people. We're not consumers in this place. If you follow Jesus Christ, then what I'm telling you is for the next bunch of weeks, put on your participants because we're in this together, okay? You're not a consumer this morning. You're, we're in this together as we talk about intentional evangelism. And one of the things we should recognize if, if you are a brother or sister and you're in Christ this morning and you've said, yes, you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are blessed. You've been blessed by God through Jesus Christ. And the, the thing that we're looking at is this blessed intentional evangelism. It's material that the covenant has developed. As I'm looking at it, I like it. I like what I see. And one of the cues that they take is the idea that we are to be a blessing to other people. If we've been blessed, we pass it on. And the cue that they really take, from it comes from the beginning, uh, from Genesis 12, when God blesses Abraham. He's making this covenant with Abraham. Back in Genesis 12, 1, it says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. He says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples of the earth, on the earth will be blessed through you. From the very beginning, that was God's plan. He's going to bless, and then it's supposed to go out from the one who's blessed to bless those around. God's outpouring for the world from the blessed. It doesn't stop with me because I've been blessed with the good news. It starts with me. It needs to keep going from me. And, and let's just define blessing this morning in very simple terms. It, it can be a very complex uh, concept because it can go kind of different directions, but it's an expression of good for another. That's what a blessing is. Not just thinking it, it's expressing it towards another. Whether it's a word of encouragement or buying the coffee of somebody in front of you at Starbucks or behind you, I guess that would make more sense. In star, at Starbucks, whatever it is, you can try it the other way. I don't know if it'll work. 
you're blessing somebody, you're expressing that goodness towards somebody. At its highest level, you're expressing goodness towards somebody to elevate them. Man, the way that God experiences the world, that's the way as good as I want it to be for you. I want it to be the best that you are in sync with God's very heart and you experience God's goodness. That would be the highest blessing. And it can come in different ways. Peer to peer. I could bless you. You could bless me. We're on the same level. I could bless God. God can also bless me. We can actually be a blessing to God. Express goodness towards the one who's expressed it towards us. It can go many different levels, but but at its basic, it's an expression of good towards one another. Now, if you look at Abraham, he gets blessed. And, and you look through the Old Testament, they're grappling with what this blessing means and looks like in practical terms, and it can go different directions. Somebody can be blessed, and they can, in turn, become entitled. I got all this good stuff, it's for me, I should get more good stuff. That's the consumer route, right? The other direction would be, I've been blessed, my cup runneth over. I should bless others. That's the direction we want to go. Of course, the greatest blessing of all is God's good news through Jesus Christ, that you and I can have new life and new birth through Jesus Christ. That God raised Jesus from the dead, and because of that, death is dead, and we can have that life and even live it now. And we have a hope that we can live into. That's God's good news. That's a blessing to us. God blessing us in the richest way. And if you've recognized that blessing, brothers and sisters, you are indeed blessed this morning. And the blessing should not stop with us. That's the thrust of where we're going with all of this. God's plan seems to be to bless and then ask the blessed to do the same thing, to bless the next people around them, the people in our sphere of influence. You have a mission. I have a mission to bless those with the good news around us. The question becomes, how will you be a blessing? Now, let's read a passage of scripture, very familiar to a lot of us from John 4. We're going to read 1 through 26. It's the the story of uh, Jesus talking with the Samaritan woman at the well. Likely familiar to a lot of you. I believe we've preached on it before here. We're going to make a few observations as we go forward, but let's read the whole story so we know where we are. It says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus... Tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon, midday, heat of the day. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would given, had to be given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? 
Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said, just said, is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is probably the minutes of the actual conversation, just so we're aware. It's probably not every detail of the conversation. You're getting the highlights. What's the deal with Samaritans and Jews? Why do they not get along? It's a long history, and I won't give you the whole thing, although I'd love to. Uh, But back nearly about 700 years prior to this point, uh, Israel had broken into two parts. About 722 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel gets conquered, which is where Samaria would be. They get conquered by the Assyrians. Part of those people get deported, taken away from their land. But the pattern of the Assyrians was to pull some people out of the land and relocate them, but also do that with other people and relocate them to new areas. So basically you create survivor, if you will, in Samaria or in the northern kingdom. Here's a whole bunch of people who don't know each other and now have to figure out how to live on the island together. That's what's going on. So they put about five other different people groups with uh, the Jews that were left in the northern kingdom of Israel, now cut off from Jerusalem in the south and where the temple is, all that figures into it. Well, they start to intermarry over time, and further animosity is created between those who become Samaritans, sort of half-Jewish, if you will, who, who kind of they intermarry with the people and become a different group, if you will, and then they start over time to worship in a separate place because they can't get to the temple. And so they call this other place, Mount Gerasim, uh, near Sychar, their place of worship. This animosity just continues to develop over time. Now, why did Jesus go through this route? Most Jewish people of Jesus' day avoided it. It's the straightest path through kind of hilly terrain, but most people would go over to the east, follow the Jordan River, and come back west to, to circumvent that whole area so they don't have to go through Samaria. So great was the animosity. And now you can understand also the story of the good Samaritan. Pretty powerful story for Jesus' day. It's, not the, it's the fastest route. It wasn't the preferred route. Jesus took the route. He clearly is trying to get out of town quickly, is what it, the text seems to point us to. 
The other thing that's interesting is, why are you a Jewish man talking to me, a Samaritan woman? Jesus is a Jewish rabbi talking to a woman. Those things just generally didn't happen, especially not a Samaritan woman. Furthermore, she's a Samaritan woman who, as it says, she's been married five times. The law allowed three marriages, and she's living with the sixth person. So you can start to figure out, one way or another, she's kind of living at the fringes of society here, basically. And, and Jesus is talking to somebody at the fringes of society in a group that normally his people don't associate with. At the well, in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, probably a mile out of town is where the well is as they figure it out. She went by herself, so you've got a safety issue, and she's not with anybody at all, and nobody's going to be out in the middle of the day. She is the very edge of society. Jesus addresses her. And it's interesting because what you have here is a cross-cultural mission moment. And you also have here a moment of evangelism, sharing good news with this woman. Jesus does these things. He sits there and he ends up becoming a blessing to her. And as we look at this idea of bless, this intentional evangelism, when I say that, when we hear evangelism, some of us hear all kinds of different things and not always positive. One, people will hear you have to have the gift of evangelism, otherwise you ought not do it. I don't have the gift of evangelism. Some people in this room do. I don't. I'm still called to it, and I'm going to do it. And I'm working hard to do it and model it so that we do it as a people. It takes work. Some of us hear evangelism, and we hear somebody should be, uh, we're being placed on a street corner with a tract and making cold calls on people. Well, that could be one way to do it. That's not necessarily what I'm advocating right now. I think if we look at what Jesus did, we can gather something very important about how we can bless others and share the good news in the process. Because Jesus obviously recognizes his mission. He's come to the lost sheep of Israel, but he's come to to bring the kingdom of God and share the good news that comes with that. It turns out that he takes the opportunities that come his way. He acts on his mission that God has given him. It is who he is. It's not just a component of his personality. It's the core of who he is. And I want to point out to you today, when you become part of God's good news, you're going to share more easily God's good news. When you become part of God's story, it's going to come out of you more naturally. And that's one of the things Jesus does here. It's very natural what he does with this woman. It does take effort, but it's natural. We live in a a culture that has quite easily segmented our reality into different compartments and boxes. We're emotional, we're spiritual, we're psychological, we're physical, right? We're all of those things. We don't often put those together as the whole person. Sometimes we separate those out. Or we have a spiritual box in our life, but that doesn't meet up with our work life or our family life. We quarantine these different things as if we can be one of those without the other things. We're total people. Jesus represents, this is his total reality, the mission he has from God. There's not a separation. There's not a spiritual part of Jesus. Jesus is on a mission. He's going to present the mission. He knows the good news. It's going to come out of him naturally because he's a part of the story. And you're not going to share the story or not going to share it well if it's only a part of of who you are, if it's just an add-on or a component to your life rather than at your core. I've run into people over the years uh, who, in different religious groups, who have tried to share their faith with me, 
Uh, and it's interesting, there are some of those groups that there's an on-the-clock, off-the-clock uh, feeling about what they're doing. They're in sort of evangelism or sharing mode, but when they're not in that mode, they're not going to share it with you. They're off the clock, done. They're not even thinking about it. Now, we can do that too in the Christian world. Let's not let ourselves off the hook here. In fact, a lot of people do it, if I may point out, after church. We're, we're worshiping God and glorifying God, and then we shut the switch off when we go to the restaurant after church. Don't do that. Don't be those people. We're not those people. We still share the good news when we're there. We're a representation of Christ in our church clothes. But to bless best, you have to make it who you are. Jesus does that naturally because it's who he is. Jesus also shares the story intentionally. He directs the conversation to where it needs to go. He knew what he was doing. He wasn't just accidentally stumbling upon a spiritual conversation, although there might be components of it. When he's in the conversation, he still directs it. He still talks. He still tries to to take it in a particular way. And you're going to intentionally share or more intentionally share your story when you know the story. When you're connected with the big story. It'll come out of you naturally and intentionally. One of my favorite quotes about evangelism is from a guy named D.T. Niles. He says, evangelism is simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Right? That food that's essential to your being, you're telling other people what they need to eat where to find that food. For too many of us, Christianity is dessert. We've already eaten. We're just topping it off with some cupcakes or brownies or something like that. That's not essential. None of us are going to die without dessert. There's your word of the morning, right? None of us will die without dessert. But you'll die without food. He doesn't say, this is one person telling another person where to find the thing after a meal, after they've already been satisfied to top it off and get extra unsatisfied afterwards. No, this is the essential stuff. We found it. We're going to tell others where to find it. The good news, when it has taken over your story, it's much easier to share it naturally and intentionally with other people. Let's merge this with another thought. The joke goes, uh, what's the proper time or right time to go to the dentist? 2.30. If we merge concepts together here, we're going to bring in another verse, the issue of timing. If you look at Mark 1.15, it'll come up on the screen. It's the first words of Jesus in the book of Mark. After his arrival has been announced, Jesus finally says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And if you see that word, time, that's an important concept for us to catch as well. It gets used throughout the New Testament. There is Greek is the original language here. In Greek, they have two different kinds of ways of understanding time. We can understand it the same way. Chronos time, like your watch, like a timeline. It happens at 3.30, 4.30, 5.30, 6.30. It's linear. The word that's used here, The time, kairos, has come. In older Greek, it's the decisive time. You know, this is the the moment of decision. That's a kairos moment. In the way it's used here and in many parts in the New Testament, it's God's appointed time. This was divinely ordained, divinely appointed. This is something that you need to take advantage of now because it won't come up 
again, or it won't present itself in this same way. The time has come. For Jesus, of course, we can see that this is the time in human history, for whatever reason that works out, that Jesus was supposed to come and do the work of the cross and do the ministry and mission of Jesus and for to be raised from the dead. This is the appropriate time, the kairos moment. But in the day-to-day uh, outworkings, you can see Jesus has a kairos moment here at the well. He had to go through Samaria. He wanders through Samaria. He sits down at the well. All of a sudden, here's a woman sitting there. And he says, aha, I can share the good news. I can be a blessing. And he is. And we have those same moments. If we recognize that we're on a mission, that we've been called by God to share the good news if we're in Christ, those kairos moments come along our path as well. And we need to pray to recognize those. We need to plan to recognize those. And that's some of the points I want to point out. If you want to be a blessing, to share the good news, plan for it. Plan on it actually happening in your life. That you would be able to see those kairos moments for what they are and take advantage of them because God has called you to be a blessing to other people. You know the good news. Bless others with it. That they would receive it as well. And what I see Jesus illustrating to us from the sitting at the woman at the well, two important things of how we can do this. One is, he's grounded in reality. He's a real human with her. It's a human moment. I've been involved, and we have one other in the congregation who's involved, the covenant our denomination has been trying to get some senior pastors, especially, and, and uh, leaders to be involved in an evangelism cohort. It's called Meets Every Month uh, for the next year. And some of the reading in that uh, has been very interesting. My favorite book so far is one called I Once Was Lost about evangelism in a postmodern culture. And uh, they talk, the authors talk about their experience, especially with college students, but not exclusively and that people have to cross what they call five thresholds before they really seem to come to faith in their experience. And the first one is the one I want to focus on now, which is just that people need to move from distrust to trust of a Christian. Distrust to trust, especially those who are de-churched or unchurched or outside of the church. And it's interesting, when you read this story of the, of the Good Samaritan, well, not the Good Samaritan, this one, with the Samaritan woman this morning, We look at it and we clearly look at at others around us and we can say, oh, there's a Samaritan in my life. Somebody might be doing the same thing with us, not realizing it. We might look like the Samaritan to other people, even as Christians in our culture. We have to recognize that. We might look like we're outsiders in their territory. They don't know if they can trust us. And furthermore, uh, this is stuff from 10 years ago, but it's still relevant. Unchristian, another book by Gabe Lyons and Dave Kinnaman of the Barna Group, they did uh, surveys and found out that those outside the church, how they view us. They tend to view us Christians as judgmental, hypocritical, too political, out of touch with reality, old-fashioned, insensitive, boring, and not accepting of other faiths. You say, where's the bad news, right? (laughs) Moving from distrust to trust... It's actually a giant hurdle in some of our lives. We know people that that need to make that step over that threshold. And it's tough, actually, to make it. But what I like is Jesus gives us something to go on here. He sits down with this woman. And he doesn't immediately act in a judgmental way. He sits down and he he just engages with her. There, There are two people talking, first and foremost. He treats her like a human. 
You know, we've got to do the same thing if we're going to be a blessing to other people. Not just a project, but a human. He starts there. But then further, and this is just as important, he doesn't just let it stay there. He doesn't waffle on his beliefs and say, oh, yeah, I guess you're right, the, the five-husband deal, you know, that's good, that's your reality, and uh, you can have yours and I'll have mine. He doesn't go in that direction with it. He still has convictions. He's grounded in a God's reality as well. And we need to, if we're sitting down with others, moving from trust or distrust to trust, we also need people who are grounded in the reality of Christ and reveal that reality to others. So yeah, we have the human moment. I'm going to treat you that way. But you also have to recognize that I have something else here that I want to convey to you. God's reality is working out in me, and I want that to work out in you. Sometimes people will disagree with me. That's fine. But you know what's nice? I run into a lot of people, and sometimes I'll disagree with other people, but people have commented that they're happy that I stand for something, that I have convictions even when we disagree. And that's important. You have to remember that in these cases. We can be engaged and be a blessing to other people in conversations that can move them towards Christ. But we should never give up our convictions of faith in the process of doing that. Don't sacrifice that in the process. Have your convictions. Maintain your convictions. Jesus, when he's talking to the Samaritan woman, if you recognize, he addresses the real issue. You have had five husbands. The one you're living with now is not your husband. He doesn't skirt that. He addresses it directly. But he does it with great compassion. He doesn't let her off the hook. And because he doesn't let her off the hook, guess what? He doesn't let her live in a false reality, but gives her a fair shot at freedom. At freedom from her sin. And from the guilt and the shame that come with that. That's a remarkable gift and blessing to give her, isn't it? He doesn't waffle on that. How hard is it to be a blessing? It's really not as hard as we think. It takes intentionality. It takes making the story part of who you are, certainly. But it also just takes the recognition of those Kairos moments and just trying it out. Two days after I read this uh, chapter in this book I was telling you about, about moving from distrust to trust, uh, I had somebody walk in and uh, who would fit in that category very clearly. And it was, it was really exciting for me to just sit down with somebody who wasn't overly saying, you know, let's sit and talk. They were just kind of in. And I said, why don't you sit down and tell me about yourself? And we could have a conversation. It was the start. And they had some different theological views, very different from me. And I could say, tell me more about that. I want to understand what you're saying. But I could also say, I don't think I follow your line of thought there. Can you tell me more about why you would think that? What evidence do you have for that? We could spar a little bit. But we were human. We had already established that going forward. It was a Samaritan moment for me. We run into these Kairos moments all the time, I think. Where God puts in our path people who we can have those conversations with and just inch, just bless a little bit, inch them towards Christ one piece at a time. But we have to recognize our mission in the process. We're the ones who are sharing the blessing and blessing others. And we have to be ready for it. Let's round it out with this. If you look at what happens in the story of the Samaritan woman, down in verse 39, after the disciples come back and they're confused, 
uh, in chapter 4 of John, verse 39, it says, Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Jesus knew what he was called to do. He was intentional about it. But he was ready to take those Kairos moments when they came. He didn't didn't have to go through Samaria. He did. He went that way. When the moment came, he took it. He's on a mission. Guess what? I am too. Guess what? If you're in Christ, you are too. We are to be a blessing to those that we encounter because the good news has reached us. Let's help it reach those around us. Be natural. Be intentional. Know your mission. And we'll talk about this further over the weeks to pray about it. Pray for those moments, to plan for those moments, and how to go about that. But let's keep looking for those kairos moments so that we can be a blessing. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the kairos moments that have happened in our lives. Where you've put people in our lives, and they've taken those God-ordained moments to tell us about your good news. And thank you that we took the God-ordained moment to say yes and to follow you. So, Father, don't let us get complacent in following your son Jesus as disciples. Let us emulate what he's shown us just as much as he's changed us from inside out. May we follow the model of faith that we have in Jesus Christ who sat down with the woman at the well who recognized that she was one of your creation, loved by you, but who recognized that it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. It is for freedom that God had, or Jesus had to be straight with her and bless her so she could be released and drawn towards your kingdom. Father, may you put us in those conversations this week at work, in our families, at school, Help us recognize those Kairos moments. And Father, for anybody sitting in here today who's having a Kairos moment right now, we pray that your spirit would enter in and draw them to yourselves. Pray this all in your name. Amen.